Well, there's a marketing strategy called growing your tribe. This refers to getting more followers on YouTube or your blog or whatever social media platform you have so that you can sell more product to them. There was an article written by uh, Kevin Kelly, who's the co-founding editor of Wired magazine, called A Thousand True Fans. And the whole point of this is if you can just get 1,000 true fans, you can make a living off whatever content it is that you are putting out there. He writes, a creator such as an artist, musician, photographer, craftsperson, performer, animator, designer, video maker, or author, in other words, anyone producing works of art, needs to acquire only 1,000 true fans to make a living. He defines a true fan as somebody who will spend $100 a year supporting your work. So that's about $8.25 a month. So if you have 1,000 true fans, you're going to make $100,000 a year, which you can live off of, right? And uh, this is premised on developing a direct relationship with your fans. So content creators have these tribes of fans that they have, and, and you may at different seasons in your, in your career have more or fewer of them, but as long as you've got a thousand that will buy everything that you put out and spend at least $100 a year, you're gonna be able to make a living. Now, some people have tribes in the millions, and so they, they give these uh, tutorials on how you can grow your tribe, and basically, um, it boils down to an online version of be nice to your customers. I mean, that's, that's what it boils down to. Tribe building wisdom involves nuggets like be generous, you know, giving away a free ebook if you sign up or something like that. Be polite when you ask to do a guest post for someone or be friendly when you reply to comments. Say thank you if someone compliments your work. I mean, this is just manners for toddlers, you know, 101. Be nice to people and they'll keep buying your products. But in all of my reading and research and exposure to uh, these types of marketing ploys online, I have never ever seen someone give this advice, uh, that if you see your tribe getting larger, make sure to regularly, unambiguously, and publicly insult your followers. Be sure to describe them with words like wicked and evil. And if they request more of what you've been giving them, be sure to refuse point blank. Nobody ever gives that advice, and yet this is exactly what we see Jesus do as his tribe is growing. So turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 11. Luke 11, we saw the, the miracle of the mute man that was uh, possessed by a demon, being healed of that as the demon was cast out, and Jesus' uh, you know, tribe of followers that have seen all of this are just uh, gobsmacked and marveling at how powerful he is. And then uh, something happens, which is just very cringeworthy. And so let's pick up the, the story in verse 27. Luke 11, 27. Um, you know, this is after he's given us some instruction about demons and how they, you know, being free of a demon is, is not enough. You need to be saved, otherwise the demon can come back. And then in verse 27, it says, As he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. But he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. And when the crowds were increasing, he began to say, This generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at judgment, with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. So tonight we're going to look at five aspects of this message of truth so that we can understand God's priority as opposed to man's priority, right? The mission, and we'll see the accusation, the explanation, the condemnation, and the application. 
Firstly, let's, let's look at the mission. Well, let's see this verse in 27 as he said these things, these things about the demon after he's done the miracle. There's this woman in the crowd. She raises her voice so that everybody can hear and she cries out this just awfully cringe-worthy, awkward thing. Blessed is the womb that bore you in the breasts at which you're nursed. Now, this is not just uh, awkward comic relief here. This is, this is making a point. This is showing the effect that Jesus was having on people. His popularity is spreading. People are starting to realize how special he is, how holy he is, how powerful he is, and, and they're struggling to process what to do with this. And here we see this woman, and she's just feeling overwhelmed. And uh, in a moment of just uh, unguardedness, uh, her emotions kind of carry away, and she has this outburst that has the word breasts in it. And I mean, I mean, she just goes out and says it. And everyone's got to be thinking like, oh my goodness, mom, did you really say that? You know, or, or whatever. It's, it's kind of awkward. Um, basically, what she's saying is, how lucky is your mom that you are her boy? I wish you were my son. That's kind of what she's saying. I mean, she's just being carried away. But by the moment, she's seeing him do this miracle. She's hearing, giving this amazing teaching. And she's like, wow, how lucky your mom would be. I would love for you to be my child. And there's an implication here. The implication is that the closer you are to Jesus, the more blessed you are. And we would agree with that. But what she means is physically close, biologically close in the genealogy. the fact that you're related to him, there's some blessing that comes with this, and yet it is misguided. The fact that you might have special access to him. If you're his mom, that means you get to call him anytime you want. You get to spend any time you want with this guy. You get to listen to him teach. This is amazing. You've got backstage passes to any concert he goes to, that kind of thing. But Jesus said to write in verse 28, he said, Blessed rather, or on the contrary, Blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. This is turning Judaism on its head again. This is what he does in his ministry constantly. Remember that the Jews were were very um, conscious of their bloodline, their genealogy, the tribe that they were part of, the family that they were part of. You even see Paul telling the authorities when he gives his testimony, I came from Benjamin. No, insignificant little tribe. You know, I'm from one of the important tribes. They they took that kind of thing seriously. So if Jesus is the Messiah, how blessed is the person that is most closely related to him? This is a mistake the Catholic Church still makes to this day. Praying to Mary and venerating Mary and elevating her to a status of co-redemptrix. Why? Because she's um, Holy Mary, Mother of God. There's like a special closeness uh, that she has to Jesus because of their their physical, um, biological attachment. But Jesus never taught this. In fact, he undid this in his ministry on a number of occasions. Um, one of them is in Luke 8, if you just go back a couple of chapters, if you remember back to four chapters ago, four years ago, whenever we were here. Um, Luke eight nineteen. Then his mo- so he's, there's a big crowd, and his, mother's, his mother comes to see him. Luke 8.19, then his mother and brothers came to see him, but they could not reach him because of the crowd. And he was told, your mother and your brothers are standing outside, desiring to see you. And instead of giving them the backstage pass, he says, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. Really interesting. Go back to Luke 11. Same, same principle here. Don't think that having a biological relationship with me gives you an advantage. What gives you an advantage is if you hear the word of God and do it. Listen to what God says and obey it. That's how you get close to me, through obedience. Not through who my parents happen to be, or if we're cousins, or if we're brothers or sisters. And, And we need to remember that, that we ourselves don't become right with Jesus because our parents are Christians. Nobody gets saved through association with Jesus. You must know him personally. You must come into the family. You must be adopted into the family. And so this this implication that his mother is more blessed is undone by his own testimony. It is 
Special access does not come by blood, it comes by obedience. John the Baptist said in verse 9, do not presume, um, well, John the Baptist, when he was talking to the, the Pharisees and they were taking pride in the fact that they had this Jewish connection, he said, do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. In John 8, 39 the Jews say to Jesus, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works that Abraham did. In other words, accepting me and obeying God, but instead you're seeking to kill me. So there's this, this idea that these people were putting their faith in the fact that they were Jewish. It's like the more Jewish you are, the more safe you are. Our version of that is the more Christian you are, right? I'm a Christian because my parents are Christian. I went to Christian school. I go to a Christian barber. I use a Christian mechanic. I just surround myself as Christians, and that way I'll go to heaven because they're all going to heaven. That's just not how it works. It's not like we all get herded in there together, and you can just kind of shuffle along in the crowd. Like, where is Wally? Like, maybe no one will notice if I'm here or not. It's like, no, 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 no. It's a turnstile. It's a narrow gate. You come in alone. You come in with no family with you. You come in with no help. And so this theme is carried on here in verse 29 of our text, which says, When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, This generation is an evil generation. So this popularity, this sense that this woman has, that it's so special to be near Jesus, um, the crowd has this sense, ooh, ooh, show us another one. This is amazing. They always respond best to him after a miracle. He's been doing this a long time now, and he's noticed, well, they're always responding better after I do a miracle, but nobody's actually committing. And so when the crowds were increasing, he began to say that that shows that this wasn't a once-off thing. This was now going to be the new pattern. As the crowd's growing, he is going to start doing something to thin it out. This generation's a wicked generation. Not how to win friends and influence people. Not how to get a thousand true fans. Increase your tribe. Now, there's no way to spin what he's saying to make it sound like he's saying something nice. This generation, the the ones that are calling for a sign, they're evil. Jesus categorically, unambiguously insults the crowd that have gathered to teach him. This This is a very shocking tactic. This is not something we would do today. Imagine that. I mean, this last Sunday, the church was full. The Sunday before that, it was full too. Imagine I said, okay, listen, we just need about half of you to volunteer to stop coming. Please, just so, we just need a little room, you know? We like Wednesday nights where there's some space. You don't have to park your car right next to someone else's car, you know? So just please, be sacrificial, just go somewhere else. You know, even if you just stop going to church, it's better than taking up our pews. Like, we just wouldn't do that, Right? The church gets full, what do you do? You, you put them in the gallery. When the gallery gets full, you bash out that wall out there. When, the, when that gets full, we bash out another wall. When that, we're just going to keep doing that. We'll go to 10 services if we need to. We don't want to chase people away. We don't want to be like Jesus. I mean, Jesus is thinning out the crowd. What is he doing saying offensive things? Why would a preacher want a smaller crowd? Surely if people are there, at least they're hearing what they need to be hearing. That's better than not hearing it. Why would the preacher want a smaller crowd? And the answer is, it depends on the preacher's goal. What is his aim? Jesus' mission, his goal, his aim, is very simple. To tell the truth. That's the preacher's goal. That's the preacher's aim. The numbers are completely irrelevant. We're going we're gonna to see that in our evening service as uh, Pastor Will is preaching through Jeremiah. Jeremiah had no converts over a long ministry. But he told the truth, which is why he ended up in a cistern and he ended up in jail and he ended up fearing for his life because he told the truth. Jesus will tell the truth to the point that he gets crucified. Jesus frequently says, truly, truly, I say to you, and then undoes something that they believed. 
John 8.32, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. John 17.17, Jesus prayed, sanctify them in the truth. Thy word is truth. John 18.37, to Pilate, he said, for this purpose I was born and for this purpose I've come into the world. This is my mission statement. To bear witness to the truth. That's why I came. If you're taking notes, that was John 8.32. John 17.17. John 18.37. Truth, 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 truth. And this is our mission too. This is the mission that he left us. This is why when he went, he said the Great Commission was to go into the world and baptize believers, make them converts, make them disciples, and then teach them what I taught you. And what did I teach you? Truth. That's what matters. Our mission is to tell people the truth because miracles don't save people. Truth does. Association with Jesus doesn't save people. Even blood relation to Jesus doesn't save people. Only truth saves people. Truth must be proclaimed so that it could be understood and believed because it is your faith that appropriates the grace of Christ. It's by faith that you're saved. Faith in what? Faith in truth. You can't have faith in error. That's, that doesn't help. Oh, they're, they're very sincere about their religion, the Muslims, the Jehovah's Witnesses. Um, they're all very sincere. So God's going to let them into heaven? Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's the truth. You can be sincere and sincerely wrong. Paul writes about those that had a zeal for God but without knowledge. Sincerity that is misdirected. So truth must be proclaimed and believed, and, and truth can be offensive. Not all truth is offensive. God does love you. That's truth. But if that's all you're preaching, you're missing the rest of the truth, and some of the truth is offensive. So if your crowd keeps growing and no one is being offended and nobody is leaving you, maybe it's because you keep harping on the, the inoffensive parts of the truth and you're not telling the whole truth. You're not preaching the whole counsel of God. You know, sometimes I'll, if I'm visiting another church or, you know, you go to some event where there's somebody giving a, a gospel presentation or they're teaching something from the Bible or whatever it is, and then afterwards, somebody maybe in my family will say, so what do you think of that or how was it? And sometimes it's, it's really disappointing because it's not like they're saying something erroneous necessarily. It's just that they're not, they're not giving the people what could actually help them. So you'll get a preacher up there and he'll say lots of wonderful things about God and about, you know, whatever. God is powerful and God loves you and God has a plan and God is sovereign and you just say, amen, amen, amen. But if I'm there, that means it's not my church. That means I'm a visitor somewhere, which means I could be an unbeliever for all that guy knows. How come I'm not hearing the gospel? The truth that can save you. Well, because part of that is you have to first tell the person that they're a sinner and they need to be saved. And that part's offensive. You know, if you, if you tell a trans person, a transgender person that they are sinning by rejecting God's right to assign a gender to them at birth, that not only is offensive, it's illegal. It's becoming illegal. There's parts, some of our neighboring countries, it's illegal. It's coming here. Yeah, you can get fired for saying something like that. You can get arrested for saying something like that. Misgendering a person, refusing to acknowledge their decision. That's bad enough. Now imagine actually just telling the person, actually, you're sinning. You have no right to do what you think you're doing. Well, that's, that's going to be offensive. So Christians... And preachers are faced with a choice more and more every year that we have the choice of being popular and accepted or you have the choice to be faithful 
and then offensive and therefore rejected. You know, I, like I said, not all truth is offensive. It's not like everything you say has to be <laughs> harsh all the time. But you might ask, well, what is it exactly that Jesus feels this crowd is missing that he now has to shift gears and start saying things like you're wicked and you're evil and you're not going to get a sign? Well, this brings us to our second point. The accusation. This is his accusation. When the crowds, verse 29, were increasing, he began to say this generation is an evil generation. Why? This is the accusation. It seeks for a sign. But no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So the crowd's asking for a sign. In other words, a miracle. They want to see a wonder. This is like what Jesus has just done in front of this crowd. He just did a miracle. And he can tell they want another one. Ooh, do it again. And he says, no, no sign for you. Not happening. Of course he could do another one. He could do any miracle he wanted at any time. But nope, I'm cutting off the miracles. You're getting no more miracles. And you'll see another miracle, the sign of Jonah. We'll get to that. But isn't this odd? Jesus is busy doing signs. They ask for more signs, and now suddenly he says no. Well, he, was, he obviously doesn't have a problem doing miracles. Why does he suddenly have a problem with it? Well, the fact that they just saw one is important. The purpose of the sign is what? What is the purpose of any sign? What is, what is the, to point to something. The sign points to the destination. You follow the signs, you get to the destination. The signs of the miracles are pointing to Christ as the Son of God, and they're not committing. So they want to see the signs. They just don't want to go to where the signs point. And so these people are following around, and the crowd's getting bigger and bigger, and more people want to see more signs, and yet they're not committing to him. And so he says, well, let's thin out the herd. We'll just stop doing signs. If you're just here for entertainment value, you're just here to see the miracle, you're going to get bored and you're going to leave. If you're here for me, you're going to stay no matter what I say. You're a true fan. Nothing I say is going to drive you away because you know who I am. That's what he's doing here. They keep seeing signs. They're not making commitment to his teaching. This is evidenced by the lady who thinks that it, the more Jewish you are, the more blessed you are. And if people get stuck on the sign and they refuse to look where it's pointing, the sign actually becomes an obstacle to salvation. They just keep going to see the signs. Now the sign's actually in the way. Because you're not doing business with what it's saying. Miracles are to prove that this person is from God. Once that's established, you don't need more proof. You don't have to keep reproving it. That's why we don't need miracles today, because we have all the miracles recorded in Scripture. If you're not going to believe what God says in His Word, then you're not going to believe the, when you see miracles. We, there's no need for them. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22 Paul says, for Jews demand signs. Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ and him crucified. A stumbling block to the Jews, folly to the Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Gentiles, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. So you see what Paul's saying? He's saying different people want different things that excite them. The Jews want miracles. The Greeks, they want you to put on a, a, a rhetorical show. They, they want wisdom. Sophia. That's what they want. All we have to give is the gospel. We're going to preach Christ and Him crucified. Now, to those who are called, that's going to work. My sheep hear my voice. And to everyone else, they're going to they're going to leave. And you see this in Paul's ministry. Remember that in Athens, in um, Acts 17, he's in, on Areopagus, on Mars Hill, and he's busy preaching to the crowd, and he talks about the resurrection. And these philosophers, at first, they're like, oh, what does this guy have to say? Something new, yay. And then he preaches the gospel to them, mentions the resurrection, and instantly the crowd divides. 
Some are like, eh, we'll hear you again. We're not making up our minds. Others mocked him and scoffed and said, we're done with this. This is ridiculous. But others followed him. So the same message, when the truth goes out, it thins the herd that way. The, the people who are not called, who are rejecting the gospel, they're going to be offended by the gospel. The people who are called are going to hear the same words, the same message that should be offensive, but for some reason it's not offending them, it's drawing them in. Isn't that your experience? I've preached sermons that, that have been convicting, calling what you do sin, and I'll have two different, completely different reactions. Some people are like, that's ridiculous, I can't believe you said that, I'm out of here. And then other people are like, thank you. Thank you, that was convicting. I, I, why does a person want to be convicted? To be convicted means to be pointed out that you should, be, you should feel guilty. So you walk out, you're feeling guilty about something. Nobody wants to feel guilty, except Christians, because they know that they're guilty. And so that's what draws them to Christ, because it's in Christ that they find their forgiveness. And if you're being called, that's not offensive to you. Then he gives an explanation. We looked at the mission, the accusation. Now he explains this. Because he said, you will still get one more sign. There's one more sign that I'm going to let you see, and that is the sign of Jonah. Now just before we read on, you remember the story of Jonah. All you need to know about Jonah is that he was swallowed by a great fish, and he was in the belly of the fish for how long? Yeah, three days. And then he was vomited up, and he went into Nineveh, an Assyrian city of Gentile pagans, and he preached to them. In 40 days, Nineveh will be overthrown, that's all he said. And the whole city repents, and they all get saved. So there's a couple of things happening here. One is Jesus is going to go into the belly of the earth for how long? Three days, right? So that's kind of the sign of Jonah right there. Jonah went down, came up, and it led to salvation. I'm going to go down, come up, it's going to lead to salvation. But there's a very specific part of the story that he's referring to here. So let me read it for you, verse 30. As Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man, Jesus, be to this generation. And then he throws in another illustration. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation, and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Okay, so what's happening here? Um, you've got two examples that Jesus is using of Gentiles who knew very, very little, who got, in our words, saved, and he's comparing them to this generation I'm speaking to who have had very, very much teaching. You've seen the miracles. You grew up Jewish, so you know the Bible. You've, you've had as much as a person can have. You've, you've seen me. I'm greater than anything that's been before. I'm doing these miracles. You've seen that. You're still not committing. And I'm going to compare you to two groups of people, um, two examples of people that knew almost nothing but the little they had, they latched onto, and that's why they were saved. And the first one is the Ninevites, the Ninevites. And all they knew was that little statement, in 40 days, Nineveh is going to be overthrown. And that was enough for them. They didn't even know what to do. Remember, the king calls a fast. He fasts. The whole nation fasts. Well, the whole city. They make the animals fast. The animals are like, what's going on here? What do we do? What's going on? Because as go the people, so go the animals. They're fasting, everyone's in sackcloth and ashes, no one's eating, no one knows what to do. That's not, even, that's not even how you do it, but they were just that desperate with the little piece of knowledge that they had. And God sees that faith that they have in Him, a God that they don't even know. They don't even know how to please Him, they don't even know what to do. They're just showing like, we, we want you. And that little, little bit of faith in Him is enough to save them. That's example number one. The second example, the Queen of the South. This is the queen of Sheba. So if you go back to 1 Kings and you, you read about Solomon, the thing about Solomon is he had a reign of peace. David had a reign of bloodshed. That's why he couldn't 
build the temple, but God said, I'll let your son do it. God makes Solomon the richest person in the universe so that he can build the temple and make it the way it should be. And so Solomon does. And, but he's also the wisest person and the richest person. And his kingdom's in complete peace. So he just, you read, the, you read First Kings, you read Ecclesiastes, he just goes haywire. And you know? like he's building stuff all over and he's, he's got the gardens that he's making and the irrigation systems and he's collecting things and he's got animals. He's got like a whole Michael Jackson menagerie, you know, Never Never Land full of chimpanzees or whatever it is that he's got. He's just, everything's gold. They said there was so much gold at the time of Solomon, that if you saw silver on the ground, you wouldn't bother to pick it up. Eh, it's not gold, never mind. Because that's how rich everyone was. That's how fantastic everything is. And what started to happen is that word got round. And word goes all the way to the Queen of Sheba, who is down south. And so she makes a whole trip all the way up with her whole entourage or whatever, because what she has heard, she doesn't believe, because it sounds too good to be true. And then she shows up, and in First Kings, he gives her this tour of the whole thing, and she sees everything, and she says, what I have just seen, not the half of which was told to me. Like, this is double as good as anything I even imagined. And she says, you've taken my breath away. And then there's music in the background. And um, she kind of swoons, and who knows what else happens. But the point is that she is flabbergasted by the power that, God has given Solomon. And the implication is that she, you know, even with that little bit of knowledge, she's not even Jewish, that little bit of knowledge, she, she buys it. She accepts it. She's like, this is real. And so Jesus says, on judgment day, you all here who just saw the miracle and you just want another one and you're not ready to accept me, on judgment day, you're all going to be there and then you're going to say, what? We didn't, we didn't believe because we didn't have enough we didn't have enough evidence and then you're going to hear <coughs> from the witness box and you're going to look over and there's the queen of sheba saying i knew nothing and i believed and the, and then there's going to be <coughs> over here and there's 600,000 Ninevites in the witness box and they're going to be like we knew nothing except a couple of rumors about your God, like the Queen of Sheba. Rumors. And all we had was one measly sermon. In 40 days, it's all going to be overthrown. And that was enough. You just heard Jesus teach. And you met him, and you saw him, and you saw miracles, and you rejected. it. That's the point here. The Gentiles had a smidgen of truth, but it was enough to bring Repentance. Conversely, if you have a lot of truth and you refuse to repent, your punishment is therefore even greater, which we see in the next point, condemnation. Go to point number four. Look at verse 32. The men of Nineveh will rise up in judgment with this generation and condemn it. Why? For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. I'm greater than Solomon. I'm greater than Jonah. These people had just Jonah and Solomon, and they believed. You've got me, and you're not believing. So you cannot say, how was I supposed to know? You have enough evidence. You have something greater than Jonah. So how does this translate into your life? Pop quiz. Do you know more or less than the Ninevites? Yeah, you know more. Way more. Do you know more or less than the Queen of Sheba? More, because you've got First Kings and Second Kings and all the other books of the Bible. Um, do you know more or less than this wicked generation? You know more. You know way more. You know everything they knew about Judaism, plus you know everything you know about the New Testament that they didn't have. You know that the resurrection happened. So if you reject Jesus... On Judgment Day, you're going to have the Ninevites to deal with as your witnesses. And the Queen of Sheba. You're worse off than these people, the, the, this generation that, that's seeking for a sign. Because you've got the signs. They're all recorded for you. You've got every miracle that, he, that, 
that God decided to include in his word. You've got it right there. You can read it over and over and over. You can meditate on it. You can study it. The question is, do you believe it? So you don't have an excuse, which brings us to our final point, the application. What must I do? You might be saying, okay, so what do I do? What do I do? Good. That's a good question. Uh, verse 32, the men of Nineveh will rise up at judgment with this generation and condemn it for they, here it is, repented. They repented at the preaching of Jonah. Behold, something greater than Jonah's here. This is the goal of preaching. It's not to make people feel good. It's not to make people feel comfortable. It's not to stir up your emotions. It's not to make you feel like you had a good worship experience. The, the goal of the ministry is to give you the truth so that you can hear it, be offended, feel guilty. We, we call that being convicted. Sense the Holy Spirit telling you what you're doing is wrong. You just heard from the Word of God what you're doing is wrong. Not so that you go home and like, oh, woe is me. That was another beating I got from the pastor on Sunday but so that you can repent. So you can do something about it. That's the whole point. You go to the doctor, you're like, oh, I got this lump on my head. I'm going to go to the doctor and check it out. And the doctor says, yeah, that's a tumor. That's pretty bad. But we can cut it out. And you're like, I hate that doctor. Always makes me feel bad. This is the the third time I've been to that doctor, and all he always says is, it's a tumor, it's getting bigger, it's dangerous, we can cut it out. Ah! I'm going to go find another doctor. One of these natural healers that just makes you feel good. And uh, he says, don't worry, it's just, it's part of your character. That's what I like to hear. And then you die. So no, you, you go to the doctor that tells you the bad news, gives you the diagnosis, he gives you the cure, but then you've got to take the cure. Otherwise you're missing the whole point. That's the application. You need to repent. This is the goal of preaching, to get people to repent, not to help them have happier marriages, not to have good financial habits, not to teach them how to raise their kids and have a stress-free life. All of those things are just bonuses that come with the Christian life. Preaching truth is to convict the soul of its sin to bring about a, des a desire in the person for repentance. Your question should be, tell me what I'm doing wrong so that I can fix it. Tell me what I'm doing wrong so that I can fix it. It's like if you're a gym and you're doing a deadlift and every time you do the deadlift, your back hurts. And the personal trainer comes and says, well, what you need to do is you need to bend your knees more and you need to keep your back straight. And you say, listen, I just need some encouragement. He's like, okay. Yay, you can do it. You can do it. Lift harder. That's what I need. And then you hurt yourself more. No. No, you should say, tell me what I'm doing Wrong. So that I can fix it. Now, I just want to be crystal clear here. I'm not saying you need to clean up your life because you can't clean up your life. It's okay that you're doing things wrong. It's not okay if you find out that you're doing things wrong and ignore that and just keep doing them. So what you do is, you're not like, okay, well, tell me what I'm doing wrong so that I can have this whole checklist of things I now need to go and change, and then Jesus will accept me. That checklist is too long. You, you'll never get through it all. It's never going to help. So what you do is, you just come to Jesus. And you say, fix me. I can't fix myself. I now know all the things I've done wrong. I can't go back and undo them. I know all the things I'm doing wrong. I don't even know where to start. I'm sure there's things I'm going to do wrong in the future. I'm completely doomed. That's someone he can work with. Come to him and he'll save you. Commit to him. And what that means is that as you read his word, as you hear it preached, as you meditate on what the Spirit is working on in you, you're going to find things that you do, that you love, that you realize Jesus wants you to stop doing. You're going to find things that you believe, that you learned from whoever, and you're going to find out Jesus doesn't believe that. He wants you to believe something else. You're going to find all these things, and 
if every time you bump into something that Jesus says you, you need to think differently about or do differently about, if you get offended and want to leave, then go. It's thinning the herd. But if you're of the cold, if you're committed to Christ, what you're committing to is this. I will follow you. I will follow you to death if that's what it takes. And anything you tell me to do, I will do. And anything you tell me to believe, I will believe. I'm a follower of Christ. That's what it means to be a Christian. Or in, in the words of Kevin Kelly, a true fan. That nothing he says is going to drive you away. Everything he says is something you want to hear. I'll close with this passage. This is what it looks like in John 6, 65. Jesus said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. And after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go as well? And Simon Peter said to him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and we've come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Is that you? When you hear something that you, you didn't know before, you didn't believe before, or you don't like or you don't want, what's your reaction? Are you going to be part of the crowd that leaves? Or are you going to be one of the disciples that says, where am I going to go? You're the one with the truth. You're the Holy One of God. If that's you, if that's your heart and your commitment, then you are one of his true followers. Your desire will be the same as his, to grow his tribe of followers by telling them the truth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this reminder from your word of the importance of truth and that even if people are offended, our job is to be faithful. And I pray for us, Lord, that as we are confronted with truth, that we would have soft hearts, that we would be cut to the quick, that we would be those that turn and say, what should we do so that we can repent and turn our back on our sins and embrace our Savior who lived and died for us. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. Good. Are there any questions tonight? Q&A. Yes, Christy. Oh, boy. Why don't you warm me up with some Bible questions first? <laughs> uh, my thoughts on the Alistair Begg comments. Um, so I, I assume you're referring to um, a recording of a, a Q&A or something, or at some point he made a comment that's now come to light where he was asked about, um, is there homosexuality? Transgender, just remind me of what he said. I know he said that he, um, oh, he told the person that they can, person in his church, that they not only could go to a wedding of a transgender person, but that he, he should take a gift as well. Okay. That they should, that they should go to the wedding and they should take a gift. Oh, it was the grandmother of the trans person. Okay, well, anyway, let's make it more general and not pick on Alistair. Alistair Begg's a preacher I greatly respect. And one, one of the things I've, I've also learned in ministry is that, um, yeah, when you say things and they're recorded um, and then they just go out there without the context and without, you know, there's lots of things that I say that if you just took that little snippet of what I said, it's like, what did he? Somebody recently said, with some Q&A on Wednesday, you said that there were aliens. And I was like, well, I don't believe that. So I probably didn't say that. But then when they explained what I said, I was like, yeah, I guess I did leave the door open for that. And I was like, maybe on a Q&A, you should just uh, ask that again and let me clarify. But if you didn't give me a chance to clarify and explain and the context and all of that, um, you would just, you could build a whole case that could believe in aliens. Um, so, so I don't want to deal specifically with Alistair Begg. Let me rather just deal with the issue and, and tell you what I think the pastoral response should be. So the issue with, because um, I've been asked this type of question with 
my uh, brother is a Catholic and their baby was born, my nephew, and the baby is being christened in the Catholic Church and I've been invited to go to the baby's christening. Should I go or should I not? And I know that there's different viewpoints on that and I, I would have to know a lot about each particular situation before I gave that. But in general, my, my starting point would be that if you have a strong relationship with a person and they know where you're coming from and they know what you stand for because you've actually told them before and they're crystal clear on that, then once you've established that, there are times when you can help that person um, and build that relationship and make the relationship stronger without compromising what you believe in those things. There are other times where that's not going to be possible. Um, either because they're not clear on if you're endorsing what they're doing, which you, you, you wouldn't want to do, or other people might look at that and think you're endorsing what they're doing and, and you're not, and they don't know that context, so you might have to avoid it because of that. Um, and then other things are just that egregious that you shouldn't be part of them no matter what. In my discernment, I would put a uh, homosexual union in that category. I think that's different from going to a Catholic baptism or a, I mean, I don't want to use examples because they'll come back and bite me. I was going to say a Mormon wedding, but I don't know what that's like too either. But, uh, you know, th there's certain contexts where you could go and as a Christian, you could show up and everyone understands this is the one that doesn't believe these things, but he's here to support his family. And that's a wonderful gesture, blah, blah, blah. There's other things like, oh, the Christian came, so he must be okay with it. The thing about a, a homosexual union that people are calling marriages is that it's not a marriage. A marriage was established by God and God defines it and our world is trying to change that. And so as a believer of Christ, if I go to something like that, I'm confusing people about how legitimate that is. I don't want to legitimize it at all. I would go to a wedding between two unbelievers. Absolutely. It's the one thing they're doing that's not wrong. <laughs> is that they're obeying God and getting married, you know. Um, but I would not do that if it's two homosexual people who are going through the motions of being married and calling that marriage because what, what they're doing there is wrong. Does that make sense? And they're, they're entrenching themselves in that sin and b being public. And so I, d I don't want to give approval to, the, to what should be shameful. Whereas a male and a female who have been living in sin and now finally decide to get married, I'm going to go and support that and celebrate that because they're finally repenting of the one thing and following God's plan in that one area. But that's not what a homosexual couples do. So would I say to you, if you came, like, I have a grandchild who's having a gay wedding, should I go? I would say no. I don't think you should. I think you would, should write a letter um, or have a conversation. In the letter, just say, I love you so much and this is what you mean to me and and I pray for you and I want to support you in your search for truth and I want to help with that but I believe that your decisions you're making are setting you up against God and that that's dangerous for you and because I love you I want what's safe for you um, and so if I go to this I will be supporting something that is putting you at odds with your creator and I don't want to do that um, you know, but those situations can be very careful. I've, I've given people advice before where, you know, the boyfriend's moving in with the girlfriend and the family's like, well, what they want, me, they've asked me to come help them move. So if I'm moving the, the guy's bed in that I know he's going to move in with his girlfriend and this is my son, what do I do? And again, it's, it's always very difficult, and you can't just give a blanket answer for those types of things. You don't, want to, you don't want to endorse this sin, but it depends. What kind of relationship do you already have? What have you already said? What do they already know? And then at some point, you can say, yeah, I'm just going to help you um, without supporting you. I don't want to commit to that answer, though. Anyway, got, any other questions? <laughs> Something about the Bible. <laughs> Yes.
Yeah. Yeah, let me summarize that. So in the doctrine of um, irresistible grace, which teaches that if God sets his, um, you know, makes a decision to save you and give you that grace, he is able to overcome your obstacles so that, in a sense, that grace becomes irresistible. Um, not that he forces it upon you, but that he makes it irresistible to you. He woos you to the point that you, you want his grace um, and that he's powerful enough to do that. And so the question then is, well, is there culpability then for the person that God doesn't do that with? How come they are condemned? If, if God wanted to save them, he could save them with his grace, and then they wouldn't be condemned. So that's that. to answer irresistible grace questions, you have to get into election questions and, and why God chooses people. And the answer is, um, as mysterious as it is, it can never be because that person did something better than someone else. Because he never chooses us according to our own merit. So we get no credit for our salvation. Um, and so you are culpable for your sin because you know what you're doing is wrong, according to Romans 1. According to Acts 17, he's commands everybody everywhere to repent. So anyone who doesn't repent is culpable and guilty. And they go to hell for their own sin. They don't go to hell because God didn't do something. They go to hell because of what they did. But God in his mercy um, works on some people to change that in them so that they desire him and that they accept his grace. And why he chooses one over another is not said in scripture, what he bases that on, except his electing will, Romans 9. So those are very complicated uh, theological concepts that can sometimes be mistreated construed by people where they're like, does that mean that I can't be saved if I'm not elect? And the answer is you're, you, you haven't asked the question rightly. Let me ask the question. Do you want to be saved? And if the answer is yes, yes, then you can be saved. Anyone can be saved. Anyone who wants to be saved will, can be saved. Anyone who wants to be saved should just call out to Christ. He will absolutely forgive you. There's nothing um, that you need to do. He's done everything. And then once you're saved, you're like, how did that work? Then I can explain election to you. 